on that digital rental, you can access that through the app, through the, um, through the website, if you're on our Facebook Messenger, kind of, uh, for Facebook, if you're on that, uh, you'll get it on there, it's on the Facebook page, it's everywhere, so there's no reason why you can't We are uh, continuing to preach through the, the book of Acts and um, Acts, Romans, Romans 8. I don't know why that came up in my head, but we're, we're preaching through Romans 8. Maybe that's where I want to be. We're going to preach through Acts. We're going to preach through Acts. A lot of first churches, they plant, they always start in Acts, right? Uh, that's like the first series, but Redeemer never did it, so maybe uh, kind of subconscious is there. Um, but Romans chapter 8, uh, we are um, doing a series called No Condemnation. This is our lit. Series. We're doing this with the season of Lent. And um, I'm going to read Romans 8, um, 5 through 8, and, and then um, I'm going to pray. <coughs> Romans 5, Romans 8, verse 5 through 8. It says, For those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things. For those who live according to the Spirit, to their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. So Lord, we are, um, again, um, Lord, you're deserving of all praise and glory, Lord, and we ask, Lord, this morning that you would teach us through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would um, convict us of the sins in our hearts, the subtle sins, the respectable sins that we have come to believe and hold that aren't a big deal. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of those, that we're all guilty of those, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to worship of you this morning, that we would be renewed in understanding your grace. Christ's grace for our sins, Lord. May that be... Um, the theme of this morning, may we learn and be convicted and maybe be led to worship and praise, recognizing, Lord, the great grace that we have in Christ Jesus for our sins. Lord, we, uh, we pray for uh, Global Mission uh, Church of Charlotte, Lord, that some of us got to go and help plant uh, this past Sunday, Lord. It's always exciting to launch a church. It's always difficult that next Sunday, Lord. That second Sunday is the difficult one when maybe less people are there. Um, it doesn't seem as exciting. It's not as new. Lord, I pray that you would uh, you, you would encourage uh, Dan and his team this morning. You, I know that you already have. We're kind of they probably have already met because we're an hour uh, behind them, Lord. But I just pray, Lord, that you would give them encouragement this morning. That you would um, give them that your grace and your love would be poured into their team's hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use them, Lord, to bring many people to come to know Christ. For the, the restaurant, Queen of Sheba, that we went to uh, in Charlotte and got to meet the restaurant owners. And then actually one of the team members from that church got to meet them as well. I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to repentance and faith in Christ, that they're not believers. And you would lead them to join be a part of the church. Pray for others, Lord, that we have yet to meet that are part of your plan and your will for us to meet and for them to come to know Christ and for them to be a part of the church. But I pray that you would send us to be amongst those people. Lord, I praise you. We love you. And Lord, I pray that you would use this morning for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to be back. Um, me and Ryan and Lisa, Ryan Taylor and Lisa and Josh uh, were gone this past week, uh, past Sunday. We were in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
uh, helping the church that I prayed for plant their church. And so that was really exciting for us to be able to be a part of that. We got to uh, invite people to their service in an apartment complex and met some people and prayed for some people that we'll probably never meet again. But God knows them, and, and God's spirit is working in their hearts, you know. And um, got to have dinner at different places and meet new people and make new friends. And so that's always a good thing to do. I was telling Dick this morning, uh, it's always great to have friends in other places because you can always hit them up for places to sleep, right? I mean, that's the whole thing. And, and so, and people pay for your dinners and your food. And you, you know, that's the great thing about having friends is have friends all over the world so you don't ever have to pay for anything. You places you can stay, food that you can eat, and you can just take care, you can just kind of, they can just pour grace on you and you don't have so. That's always great to do that, to make new friends and new Christian friends especially. Um, so I want to I talk about, the, the title of the sermon is, I unfortunately have seen this movie, it's called White Man, White Man Can't Jump, right? Uh, I, think, I think when I was a kid, like, you weren't, we, weren't, we weren't allowed to watch radar movies, but we had cable, right? So therefore you would watch all those radar movies, like, edited on, like, TBS or USA, and I think that was one of those movies that I watched, like, on those cable channels that like all those stuff that they edit is still there right it's just somewhat covered up and so as a as a as a kid who wasn't allowed to watch those movies but wanted to watch those movies and my parents weren't allowed to go to the theater to watch this or go to the blockbuster and rent them you would watch them on cable late at night right so this was one of those movies that i happened to watch when i was a kid um, and it's, the, the premise of the movie is, is that the, the character, the white character, is in this two-on-two -two basketball tournament with this, with this black friend. And the whole thing is, is that he can't jump and he can't dunk. Um, and here's the thing. John Adams, uh, and, you know, John Adams was the second president of the United States. He was one of the founding fathers. He, uh, he, you know, as Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, John Adams was very much... Uh, a part of that and was really the, the spirit and the leader of the Constitutional Congress that declared, at the end of that uh, conference and that convention, they declared their independence from King George of Britain. John Adams was very much the leader of that, uh, that, that, that decision. And before that happened in 1770, they were, but we kind of spurred a little bit the, the, the kind of the, the push for Declaration of Independence from Britain was the Boston Massacre. And in the Boston Massacre, and what happened was is that some of the, 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 the citizens of Boston were throwing rocks and ice at the British soldiers. And at that time, it was eight soldiers. One was Captain Preston and his seven soldiers. And they were us. They were standing army. They were walking the streets. They were, you know, doing their job as they were ordered. And people hated that the British army was on their streets. And so they tried to instigate them. And by instigating them, the soldiers shot and killed a few people in that crowd, that mob. And John Adams, who was a great lawyer of Boston at that time, defended. The soldiers, he was their defense lawyer. And he argued, he had this, this statement, he says, facts are stubborn. Facts are stubborn. And what he was saying by that is he says is that while the passion of the Bostonian citizens is that they want justice against the British, they want not to be taxed by the British the way that they were. They wanted representation in Parliament. They weren't having it. And so their passion and their anger it doesn't give the court the right or the justification to sentence these soldiers for doing their job. That these men were actually defending themselves 
And he says that is the facts of the case, which they were the facts of the case. And he says facts are stubborn. Facts are stubborn. And, by, and the end of that story was is that by his great defense of these soldiers, these soldiers were acquitted of that, uh, of that uh, offense, and they had a fair trial. Well, what I mean with the stubborn, uh, facts are stubborn, you know, nature is stubborn. You know, I, it's really sad the day when a boy, or a, when a boy becomes a man, when he realizes he's not going to be a baseball player, right? The day that he realizes that he's not going to play basketball for a living, or he's not going to play football for a living, that those days outside, when I was a kid, out of basketball goal, and I would go outside and shoot baskets, and kind of dream and visualize that I was like, you know, it was March Madness, and I was shooting the last shot. We have kids do that, or it's the last, it's, it's, it's tied, bottom of the ninth, two strikes, and you know, you hit the home run. You have those dreams as a child, but then when you can become a man and you realize you're not going to be a professional athlete, that's kind of a sad day, right? I mean, like that dream isn't going to happen. And it's not because you didn't try or that you didn't have desire to do that. It's because you just weren't tall enough, right? Like the reason why LeBron James is who he is is because he's 6'8", 280 pounds. Like I'm never going to be that tall and I'm never going to probably be that big. So basketball is not in the cards for me. They say that Michael Phelps, the reason why he's such a great swimmer is because his body is great to be, is, is, is divine in a certain way that makes him a great swimmer. He has long arms, he has a long body. His like proportions are just perfect for some elite swimmer. And I don't have Michael Phelps' body. I don't have, uh, I, when I was a kid, I ran track, I ran long distance. And I tried to run as fast as I could. I worked as hard as I could. And the, talk, the older I got, the, my legs weren't as long as they used to be. And I couldn't run any faster. People were passing me and beating me. So nature is stubborn, isn't it? I mean, like, it doesn't somehow allow us to do what we wish we could do. So nature is stubborn. And I want to kind of talk about this, this issue that Paul brings up here. He brings it up here in verse 5. Talking about um, those who live according to the flesh. So my point number one is the state of affairs. State of affairs. Paul's been building this argument. Obviously, we're not preaching through Romans seven, which would have been great to preach through Romans seven before we got to Romans eight. It makes logical sense, but we kind of just dropped right into Romans eight, and so I kind of do a little bit of back. I'm going to do some going back to Romans seven to help us understand what Paul means here by the flesh. Because he really expounds on that in chapter 7. Like, what is the flesh? What is he talking about when he says, those who live according to the flesh? He says in chapter 7, starting in verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In the flesh, living in the flesh. And he expounds on this that I was in the flesh. I am a man of the flesh. What it means is that someone who's sold under the law, I mean, sold under sin, he is enslaved to sin. He's a, his true master is sin. He is enslaved to his flesh. Nothing good dwells in me, he says. Nothing good, because I am in the flesh. And as a person in the flesh, Nothing good dwells in me. The nature of who I am is sin. I have a sinful nature, and there's nothing I can do about it. I was born in this world with this nature. 
And sin was I conceived, that Paul, David says in Psalms 51, I am sinful. That is my nature. I am of the flesh. I am in the flesh. Our sinful passions aroused by the law. He even says in chapter 7 that the law is good. It's God's law. There's nothing wrong with the law. But because of the law, there's new categories of sin that I've done, but now I have categories to understand it. So committing adultery before the law, there was no concept of what that was, even though people did commit adultery. But the law just exposed the category now. There's the category. So Paul is saying, the law is just aroused in me, and, and the sin has, has used, the flesh has used the law to show me how sinful I really am. It develops categories for my sin. I am in the flesh. I lack the resources and abilities to please God. Is what Paul is saying in chapter 7. Because of, the, because, of the, because of sin, because of my nature, I am a man of the flesh, that I lack the resources and abilities to please God. And he's, he's, he's calling out the Jewish people who were trusting in the law, in God's law, that they had the law, and because they had the law, they are therefore righteous. Just because you know the law does not make you righteous, and that's what Paul is saying. The law has no power to, to transform your nature. We're powerless against our sinful nature. We're unable to submit to God's law. It produces hostility against God. Ring the bell with this passage today, right? What does he say at the end of, of our passage here in verse, in verse 8? He says that we cannot please God. Those who, whose minds are set on the flesh are hostile to God. They cannot submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot please God. This goes back to what Paul is saying, that we're in the flesh, by our nature. We can do no other than to sin. God's law is a weak and powerless agent of transformation of my sinful nature. By nature, I am in opposition to God's law. Paul basically expounds on that through the entire chapter 7. I, by nature, am in opposition to God's law. Therefore, you and I are under God's just and proper condemnation. The title of the series is No Condemnation, but now I'm telling you that God's condemnation is on you because of, the, of your sin, because of being in the flesh. Going back to Romans 2, 4 through 9, it says, or, or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hand, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will tender to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. We are in the flesh, therefore deserve God's condemnation. We are under God's wrath because of the works of our flesh. By nature, we are under this wrath. We are under this judgment. You know, the church 
the world church today, you go to a lot of churches, they don't like to talk about sin, right? Now, the fundamentalists are the extreme Baptists or the independent Baptists, some of you are Southern Baptists. Uh, they, they, they'll talk about sin. But most of your trendy, popular, uh, highly attended churches, you don't want to talk about sin because that doesn't really work with people, right? We, we want to almost give, we want to talk about grace a lot. We want to talk about Christ's love, but we don't want to talk about sin. Even in the music, we don't want to talk about sin, right? Because you know, we don't want people to be downcast. We don't want people to get like, a sense of like, oh, this is an oppressive place. We want people to be all, be all uplifting. We want to talk about grace. And the problem is, is that you can't really get into the, the meat of grace if you don't talk about sin. Because what's the point? What's the point of Christ's crucifixion? What's the point of Christ's shedding blood if you're not going to talk about sin? And so I think what happens is, is that people's overemphasis on grace and lack of emphasis on sin, they actually get grace wrong. That's what we're going to really talk about. So I'm going to talk a lot about sin and judgment, but we're going to get to grace. Then Paul continues to kind of get into this, that we are under God's wrath. Verse 13 of chapter 2, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Just because you have the law, just because you hear the law, doesn't make you righteous. You have to be doers of the law. But Paul says, you can't do the law. You're in the flesh. By nature, you cannot do the law. So therefore, you are under condemnation. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews are better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under, this, under sin. So you can be a Jew... Or it be a Greek, it doesn't even matter. That we're all under God's judgment. All unable to fulfill God's law. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but not righteousness. Due to your nature... And nothing within your, uh, ourselves can bring you relief, can be an advocate for you. Nothing. There's nothing in you. There's nothing uh, that you have. There's nothing that, you're bestow of, that you own or something that's been given to you in this world that can redeem you, that can save you, that can transform you. You are in the flesh. You live according to the flesh. That is your nature. And by nature, you're under God's condemnation. So he says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So we live according to the flesh. By nature, we live according to the flesh. So therefore, our minds are set on the things of the flesh. What does that mean? What does set their minds mean? What does that mean? It means to concentrate your thoughts, your feelings, and your senses. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12. What seems right to a man, what seems right to you, what you concentrate your feelings, your senses, your thoughts, your emotions... You fixate everything about you on something. You focus, you're preoccupied with something. It's that thing that keeps you up at night, right? You're just like so fixated on it. For some of you, maybe it's like buying something new. Like you're like wanting to buy this new house. And you have like, you're just like wondering like, am I going to get it? You're so fixated on this concept, this, this, this hopefulness. You're, you set your mind on it. I know men, we struggle with focusing sometimes. Like sometimes we don't fixate on anything. That's our problem. Women fixate on things really well, and we're, and we're so surprised by that, but sometimes, like, I don't, I don't, sometimes my mind's completely empty. Like, I'm not focusing on anything. I'm not fixated on anything or concentrating on anything. And that's what we're really concentrating on, is nothing. We want nothing in our heads. That's why we're concentrating on it, so we're fixated on it. 
push. We're, so this is the idea of fixing your mind, being preoccupied with something. Your goal, your quest, your mission, you're locked in, you're zeroed in on something. You're putting your time, your investment, your energy, your thoughts on something. That's what set the mind is. And Paul says that the one who's in the flesh sets their minds, their focus, their fixation, their preoccupation on the flesh. What is the flesh? What is the works of the flesh? We have that great passage in Galatians chapter 5. A lot of sermons are done on the fruits of the Spirit. They kind of skip over the uh, Galatians 5.19 part. But if you uh, now the works of the flesh, works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are works of the flesh. Where you're kind of like, well, I don't do any of those things. I don't do orgies. Like, I'm pretty good. Like, I don't works of those fleshes. I, 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 I don't have, like, I'm not causing great strife, right? I'm not causing great divisions at work or in my neighborhood. I'm a pretty quiet person, man. I pay my taxes. I mow my lawn. I take care of my kids. I do my homework. Like, I'm a normal person. I don't, these things don't really fit me. It's interesting. What does Jesus say to Peter? When he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. In that passage, remember when Peter says something out of turn, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, in uh, Matthew 16, 23. He rebukes him and says he was, uh, he was baby, basically being hindered by the flesh. That the flesh has caused Peter to say what he said was, you know, nothing is going to happen to you, Jesus. Nothing was going to persecute you. And in a sense, what Peter is doing is, is that he's only concerned with himself. He's not concerned with Christ and his will. Peter is self-centered. He only cares about his own will and his own interests, not the interests of Christ. Christ came to seek and save the lost, not to accomplish Peter's will, but his father's will. So he says, you are working according to the flesh. But he didn't, Peter didn't, Peter didn't, what did Peter, uh, what did he fail here? Was he, uh, was he, was he worshiping sorcery or was there certain enmity about him? But he is living according to the flesh. There's a sense of the flesh is also self-centeredness. My concerns, my issues are my priority. That's what Peter did. He said, my issues, my concerns, my priority is more important than yours. What I desire is king. The natural self, the Adam self, is to say what I want, not what God wants. Now the focus of our lives, the concentration, the fixation, is myself and I. My happiness, my entertainment, my wealth, my rightness, my power. Everything is about me, and my fixation is on that. And however, whatever activities I need to do to get that is my mind is set on that. Our fixation is on that. And what does Paul say? He says that fixation, that self-centeredness, leads to death. Death is the consequence for your overabsorption with yourself. What does Paul say in Romans 6.23? For the waste of sin is death. What does God tell Adam if he eats of the tree? He says, you will surely die if you fail to obey my commands. What does Paul say in Romans 5.12-14? He says that this condition of death is spread to all men. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We are all under this condition of death by our nature, in the flesh, our self-centeredness, our fixation on our own ones and our own needs and our own will. The consequence of that is death. I was very clear on that. The mindset of the flesh is an enemy of God. For therefore we have received condemnation, we have received judgment, we have sought our own glory over God to exchange the chief end of man as ourselves and not to glorify God. We're going to glorify ourselves, not God. And the sentence of that is death. So therefore, the mindset of the flesh is an enemy of God. Mind directed away from God. There's a wills that are at odds. There's God's will and there's my will. And my will wants something completely opposite of what God wants. Therefore, there's strife, there's enmity, there's hostility, there's war between God and man. Therefore, we are sold under sin. Our master is sin. Our master is ourselves, not God. And therefore, we cannot submit to God's law. We're soldiers of sin. We're freedom fighters. For ourselves, we're protesters for ourselves. We are on the streets picketing for ourselves against God. We are freedom fighters, we are soldiers for ourselves. Hence why Paul says that if you're living according to the flesh, if you're setting your minds on the thing of the flesh, you cannot please God. There's no possible way you could possibly please God. By nature, you cannot please God of the flesh. Nothing in yourself can fulfill, fulfill the holy requirements of God and His law. By nature, you are broken. The default setting is broken. You know, I love iPhones. You ever get your iPhone and it gets stuck? And you're like, trying to freak out a little bit because you're like, oh my gosh, my phone doesn't work anymore. I'm pushing the buttons of the apps, nothing's working. I'm pushing the home button, nothing's working. But you have that great reset function, right? You can push, I can't remember what it is. It's like home button or the off button and the like sound down. They change with each different iPhone. That's a great thing, right? That, that does that and it works. It comes back and like, thank God, I don't have to go back and spend $800 on a new iPhone or a new phone. There is no reset button on us. We can't push anything to reset ourselves back to ourselves before the fall of Adam. There is no reset. There is no default mode to go to. We are broken and there's no way to fix us. There's no button to push. We don't have one of these. You know that, that passage in Isaiah 6 where the, the prophet saying, Holy, Holy, Lord is the Lord God Almighty. It would be almost great to insert, and Isaiah is sinful, sinful, sinful before the Holy, Holy, Holy God. That, that is the truth. That is who we are. And let me, because I know what's happening in some of your hearts and minds. You're like, Matt, I mean, come on, man. What's with the need to push the sin so much? Like, we're all good American people. We're all good Midwestern, happy, nice people. What possibly does the Bible have to be against us? We are good. There's nothing that we do wrong. We don't fail in any of the works of the flesh that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. I'm not, again, I'm not doing orgies. Like what? I'm not, I don't sin. What we've come to believe is that there's unrespectable sin and there's respectable sin. And respectable sin is the sin that in the eyes of God is just as bad as unrespectable sin. And we've come to believe that in a character and conduct that's relative to the moral culture in which we live. So in secretly we are glad certain people are around us. 
our bad seats. We're all, and secretly we're glad that there's that guy that works with us that gets drunk every night. Like, secretly we're glad because we can like, prepare ourselves. Well, I'm not that guy. Or the girl who gossips and takes pictures of herself and goes on Instagram with like her bikinis on and stuff. I'm not that girl. So if I don't do that, then I must be okay. So secretly, we're, we're good with those. We're glad that they're out there because we can kind of compare ourselves with them. They define what some may view as the low scale of morality. Well, I'm on the high scale. They're on the low scale. By nature, we're all sinful, though. So they're just as sinful as we are. So for most of our sin is subtle, acceptable to many and unseen. The, there's a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. It says sin, all sin, it's vile, ugly, audacious, uh, pestilent, uh, harmful, hideous, spitful, poisonous, virulent, violentous, abominable, and deadly. It's all that. The respectable sin and the unrespectable sin, they're all transgressions against God. The same sin that David committed in 2 Samuel when he slept with Bathsheba and had a right to death die is the same before God as when we are a little prideful, a little self-centered, hold back truth a little bit, a little bit self-absorbed. It's the same sin before God. It's just as displeasing to him. God said that he was despised by David's sin, and God is just as despised by our respectable sin, by our subtle sin. The sins that nobody sees, nobody would actually even call a sin, but the Bible does. It grieves the Holy Spirit, and you know what? God is everywhere, right? The omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, he is everywhere. Therefore, our subtle and respectable sin is open and public. So it's not that subtle. It's not that respectable. It's not that secretive. And so those of you who struggle with anxiety and frustration, I know that's kind of a big key word today. It's anxiety and depression and frustration. Those are sins. Because what it is, it's a distrust of God. So one of my biggest issues is frustration. I can get so frustrated. Like, you'll see me sometimes, like, if it doesn't, something's not working, and I've been trying really hard, there'll be, like, the punch, or, like, the kick, or any type of those kind of actions. And what's going on is there's frustration. Why is this not working the way that it's supposed to work? Why is this circumstance happening the way that I planned around? What is happening, and what is going on is I don't trust the prophecy of God. I don't trust in God's goodness, and I am sinning. It's respectable. No one's going to call it out. No one's going to call me out on it. No one's going to pull me before the accountability partner for it, but it's just as sinful. It's just as sinful. Whatever befalls is according to his purposes, therefore it must be right. Whatever happens in your life, is God, God has, has given it, and we have to trust God in it. Trusting God is a moral command in Scripture. And when we fail to trust in God, we are sinning. Discontentment is a sin. When we are discontent with our circumstances, we are sinning against God's providence and who He is. He puts us in those situations. He is the one that places us there. We don't trust Him in it. We are sinning. No one's going to call us out on it. No one's going to pull us before the church on it. We're not going to be disciplined by the church on it. But it's still evil before God. We set our minds on the flesh, we're fixated on our own wills, our discontentment, our anxiety, our frustration, our simple responses to God's providence. 
Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but your will be done, to a circumstance that he was praying to God that God would change, but yet he trusted in God's will. We sin when we say, not your will, but my will, that is a sin against God. That's all the bad news. Born of the, of the flesh, in our minds of the things of the flesh. Second point is born of the spirit. We're going to go really quick here. Uh, born of the spirit, living according to the spirit. So what's happening here is, how do we get to that? How do we get from one who is being born, living in the flesh, in the mind of the flesh, and now becoming one who is born of the spirit? The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is in a passage that Pastor Sean preached last week. The righteous requirements of the law, this is verse 4, might be fulfilled in us. How is it fulfilled in us? Paul's already said that we can't fulfill the law. By nature, we cannot follow the commands of the law. We are in the flesh. How can we possibly fulfill God's law? How can God's law be fulfilled in us? Paul explains this. God's work of sending his own son, he condemns sin in the flesh. The law is powerless against sin in the flesh. Paul says in chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Great question. Who will deliver us from this body of flesh, this nature that we cannot change, this nature that is broken, this nature that is powerless against sin, powerless against frustration, anxiety, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, judgmentalness, lack of self-control, all these things. What could possibly break its power on us? I can't break it. The law can't break it. Nothing can break it. God condemns sin in the flesh by offering his son, Jesus Christ, in the, light, in the likeness of sinful flesh, as a sin offering. That is the means. That is the way for a man to become the one who is living in the flesh, the one who is living in the spirit, not something he does on his own, not something he, he practices, but by trusting in the work of Christ on the cross, we become one who lives according to the spirit. Therefore, those who are in, the, in Christ walk according to the spirit, they trust and put their faith in Christ's work on the cross. Therefore, they walk now according to the Spirit. Nature has changed. The state of being has changed. Spirit fixates the mind of a person on glorifying God. Spirit gives new affections. Love for the holy. Love for God. Drives out the love of the world. That's the great thing about salvation in Christ. It gives you the faith. It gives you the trust. You don't have to somehow... Make up some type of like, well, today I'm going to have more faith. No, the Spirit gives you that through the work of the cross. Your trust, your sanctification, becoming more like Christ, living in the Spirit, setting your mind on the Spirit, is something that God does through Christ on the cross. Your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, great passage on sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not something you do with willpower and mind. It is done through the spirit of God and through Christ. But he did on the cross. Redeems you and starts to transform you in the image of Christ. Trust in the work of Christ and you will have a life in the spirits. And have your mind set on the spirit which leads to life and peace. No longer in war against God, unable, enable, enabled by the Spirit to submit to God's law and please Him, starts with trust and faith. The 
The reward is eternal life. Christ has exalted for his faithfulness. Christ was exalted for his faithfulness to his Father. Those who trust in Christ's work through Christ will also be exalted by Christ. But it says that those who set their minds on the Spirit will now have life and peace. That is a result of Christ's work on the cross. We are exalted the way that Christ is exalted when we trust in Christ. The last point here is conversion from a life in the flesh to a life in the Spirit. Conversion. How does one become one who is in the flesh and now in the Spirit? The answer is not what some people do. It's not in the law. It's not in religious practices. Your good works will not accomplish this conversion. It won't work. It will do you no good. Your works are meaningless. They are insufficient to transform you and convert you from a one who is in the flesh to one who is in the spirit. Jesus says this about the Pharisees. He says, whoa, like all your works are meaningless. They're, they're, they are wretched before me. There's a great quote here by uh, a church um, father named Bernard. He says, so far from being able to answer for my sins, I cannot even answer for my righteousness. I don't even know if my good works are even good. I don't even know what my motive is. Sometimes I do good things for my own purposes. I don't even do it for God's purposes. So I can even trust the good deeds. They're actually even good. We can't trust any of that. Love for the world and the church, even if we serve the church, that doesn't fix us. It's because we have a position of pastor or deacon or children's minister or ministry leader or worship leader. That doesn't save you. That doesn't convert you. Evangelism, even if you like went out and shared the gospel with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people and they were converted to Christ, but you actually did it because you wanted fame and glory for yourself, that makes you sinful before God and under his judgment and condemnation. Trust in Christ is the only way to be converted from one who's in the flesh to one who's in the spirit. Not even evangelism or missions will do that. Love for the holy through repentance and worship. You can even read your Bible. You can be a scholar of God's word. And you're doing it just for knowledge. And just for wisdom. And you truly don't trust in Christ. And that would do you no good. And you know good. You can go to seminary. You can read all the books in the library. But if your heart is not in love with God, it means nothing. Nothing. It's only through repentance and worship. Love for the holy. Love for God through repentance and worship. Christ's grace and the realization of our sin leads to repentance and worship. Forgiven much, we love much. Life in the Spirit starts with trust in Christ. Faith in Christ. The last thing I want to say it's a quote by William Cowper. He says, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? For, some, for me, that, that passage resonated. Because there's a sense where that moment when you first introduced to Christ, that first, that first moment you're introduced to Christ and his crucifixion for your sin, there's a sense of awe that comes about what Christ did for you. Right? This idea of who you are, that you're a sinner, that you are wretched, you are broken by nature, you deserve nothing for, from God, but yet God gives you everything, gives you grace, gives you love through His Son. That means so much. That blessedness that you knew. <coughs> Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? And for a lot of us, we need to be refreshed in our view of Jesus and His Word on the cross. We have been living in the flesh for too long, 
And we are no longer, we are, we are not growing spiritually because we have forgotten who by nature we once were and what Christ did on the cross for us. That we were under condemnation, but because of what Christ did on the cross, there is no condemnation for us. Revelation 2.5, we have forgotten our first love. Love for the Holy. Love for God. Either you're living in the flesh and you do not have Christ, or you've been grown fixated on the things of the flesh and forgotten the blessedness that you once knew. So I'm going to pray for you. If you're one of these two people, either you are living in the flesh and you do not have Christ, and you're outside of Christ, and you're not in Christ, therefore condemnation is on you, or you've been fixated on the things of this world, and you've forgotten the blessedness that you knew. And in both of those, the application is repentance and worship for both. For, for, for some, it's the first time you've repented and worship. For others, you need to repent and worship again. So let me pray for us. Lead us in that prayer. Dear Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. We have become fixated on things in this world. Lord, we have been guilty of subtle sins and respectable sins. We have come to believe, Lord, that we are okay, that we um, can live our lives fixated on the things of our wills and our needs and outside of yours, Lord, and that is a path to death. That is a path to destruction. But Lord, we ask that if there are some here, Lord, who have never repented and put their faith in you, they are living in the flesh, and sending their mind on the things of the flesh, they are outside of Christ, they are outside of your spirit, but that you would redeem them and save them. For those of you here that are, as this quote says, where is the blessedness that I knew? What is that refreshing view of your grace and your word? And we have forgotten. We have forgotten that blessedness that we knew. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, that you would lead them to repentance and lead them to worship.